Welcome to How Story Works from Shipperish Media. I'm concept developer, Dr. Kelly Jones. And I'm story expert, Lonnie Diane Rich. We are breaking up How Story Works into four seasons following four topics, character, conflict, structure, and magic. This is season two, Conflict. Today on How Story Works, the conversation is about external and internal conflict. Say with me, everybody, story is power and we don't leave power on the table. So let's get to work. All right, so Dr. Kelly Jones, we are going to reinforce some learning. What did you learn in our last uh, episode? Okay, so we've got the CNC and mm-hmm. we've got the PGA. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty Lonnie great. uses an acronym. Yeah, I like it. It's alphabet soup. Uh, so we, you know, we talked about the central narrative conflict. Mm-hmm. So really understanding, there's going to be lots of different conflicts within your story there's going to be multiple instances of mundane conflict there's going to be many instances of narrative conflict Mm -hmm. but the main conflict the the conflict upon which your story is built Mm -hmm. is your central narrative conflict and that is a protagonist with a goal versus an antagonist with a goal Um, but that formula also works for internal conflict and we are going to talk about that today Yes, we are going to label our various conflicts. And in order to do that, oh, by the way, everything very well done. Nice performance, uh, Dr. Jones. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Thank you so much. (laughs) So we're going to start by defining our goddamn terms. Uh, We have two types of central narrative conflict. Um, You might have come across some basic types of conflict like person versus person, person versus themselves, person versus society, person versus nature uh, in your literary education at some point. And we will be addressing all of those. Uh, But even with all those possibilities, everything eventually pretty much shakes down into two categories of conflict. It's either internal or external. Either your protagonist is fighting themselves or they're fighting someone or something else. Right. So when we're looking at that big picture, what is this story about, right? If we wanted to classify the stories type, yes, um, we would look to that central narrative conflict to say, is this an external conflict story or is this an internal conflict story? Yes, absolutely. And in general, your external conflicts, as we're going to be discussing, are kind of like these broader, you know, more action-based genre type of conflicts. Internal conflicts tend to be um, more uh, psychologically based uh, because it is a person versus themselves. Um, so it makes a lot of fun, but but not always. We're going to see a couple of instances in which what is an internal conflict looks like an external um, mm-hmm. and vice versa. So yeah, those are, those are really fun. All right. So let's start with my favorite yeah internal conflict internal conflict great Internal conflict is your classic person versus themselves. Uh, This means that the protagonist is causing their own problems. Um, They want two things that are mutually exclusive and they want both things equally. Often internal conflicts break down to your protagonist's higher self versus their lower self. And the two mutually exclusive desires are the expressions of that internal conflict. Um, So yeah, you were saying that these are your favorite kinds of stories, right? The internal ones. Mm -hmm. The first rule of fight club. (laughs) We don't talk about Fight Club. Yeah, gimme, 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 gimme all the internal conflict stories. They really, when I was thinking about like the stories that I love, I was like, oh, that's internal conflict. That's internal conflict. Oh, look over there. That's internal conflict. Um, But then I had this like, for me, hilarious and very on brand 
crushing episode of internal conflict last night. <laughs> so I, I have audio audiobook credits, right? Yes. Which is like the happiest day of the month during right. quarantine. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, yay. And I'm browsing the catalog. And Lonnie, there is a version of Little Women, mm-hmm. a full cast production, <gasps> multiple oh actors narrated by Laura Dern. Oh my God. And I am like feeling the happy and like brimming <laughs> with joy. And then I notice it is abridged. Oh. And oh. I, 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 this is, this is unsolvable. You Ultimate know, I, I cannot, it, I cannot choose between my hatred of abridged <laughs> books and my love for Laura Dern. And why universe? Why? I was like, sobbing on the living room floor saying oh, why does god baby. hate me like it's just too much mm-hmm. um but i mean i'm joking sort of because also <laughs> why like oh why? my god i know why 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 mm-hmm. did they do that to me i don't know um, why they'd make you make such a terrible choice like that it was just awful yeah. it was just awful but i do love i mean little women is yeah like for me joe is the protagonist and that is kind of mm-hmm. her internal conflicts and like her personal growth and so like these are the stories I have loved since I was little this is just my my go-to so I'm glad we get to talk about it tonight yeah and the fun thing too is that internal conflict and external conflict can exist side by side and actually I think you do your best work when you have got an internal conflict for your external conflict as well or when you take an internal conflict and you can sometimes externalize that a little bit um one of them is going to be the CNC the central narrative conflict one of them is going to be the one that holds up the beats of the story um Mm -hmm. but you can have both at the same time and i think honestly that you really should um but anyway we're not talking about external right now we're talking about internal um like i said internal conflicts are person versus themselves uh while these conflicts sometimes tend to be a little less obvious uh to us when we're engaging with the story than external conflicts they are completely legitimate conflicts upon which a strong structure can be built um, some of my favorite internal conflicts. I love the movie Roxanne with Steve Martin. Uh, that is one of my mm-hmm. favorites. Um, and that one is an internal conflict because CD wants to tell Roxanne that he loves her, but is also very ashamed and very afraid of being vulnerable. So he wants to be both safe and, you know, express his love at the same time. And you cannot do that. So one has to win. These are mutually exclusive internal conflicts, right? Um, it's that a person wants two things um, and cannot have them both at the same time. Another great example of an internal conflict is Toy Story, the original Toy Story, right? Um, the conflict, the story structure is actually built upon Woody wanting two things. He wants to be Andy's favorite toy, and he also wants to be a good toy. And he can't necessarily be both because when Buzz Lightyear shows up, Buzz becomes the favorite toy and Andy stops being a good toy so that he can try to reclaim his status as favorite toy. And that's actually where all the conflict comes from. A lot of people look at Toy Story and they think, well, Buzz is the antagonist, but Buzz has absolutely no awareness of any of this. He is not, he doesn't have a dog in this fight for Woody. Woody is creating all of his own problems because of that internal conflict. Um, Gollum's arc in Lord of the Rings. I think we have one of the best expressions of an internal conflict story um, where we have Gollum actually fighting with himself um, mm-hmm. on the road to Mordor, right? So we see him wanting to be, you know, good to, uh, to Frodo and Sam and also like wanting that ring, you know? 
So that I think is really good. Um, we have two parallel internal conflicts in When Harry Met Sally. It's Harry versus Harry and Sally versus Sally for most of this uh, <laughs> most of this movie. Um, and often it can be a lovable character battling their worst instincts. If you think about the John Cusack character in High Fidelity, um, here is a guy who wants to move forward in his life and commit fully to his girlfriend, um, but he's unwilling to let go of his past, of his younger lifestyle, of his freewheeling you know, self. Um, so that's a conflict. Uh, John Cusack, again, in Gross Point Blank, he wants to feel things again and be fully connected. Um, but he's a hitman, which requires disconnection. So he's having that conflict. Um, John Cusack in Serendipity, he wants to believe in fate, <laughs> but he doesn't believe in fate. Basically, John Cusack does internal <laughs> angst to like really, really well. Uh, so those generally, if you're watching a John Cusack movie, likely there's an internal conflict at play there. But usually, if a central narrative conflict is hard to identify, if you're not really sure, once you start looking at it, um, probably it's built on an internal conflict. So look at your main character and what is it that they want? You know, think about that. Yeah. What are their goals? What are they in pursuit of? Um, mm -hmm. And when you see those things in conflict, you usually see the internal conflict sort of spring up and then you'll be able to follow how that works with the structure. Yeah, I was curious too. I know we kind of, I grew up with learning that person mm -hmm. versus person, person versus nature, per, you know, yeah. thing that, mm -hmm. that kind of a lot of us learned, but I've been curious lately about what about person versus, versus spirituality. Mm -hmm. Um, and so like you, you know, if you're called to do something for a higher reason, but then there's something in life that you want, mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, that's maybe just a regular internal conflict, but, um, I was thinking about the sexy priest in Fleabag. I, you know what? I am almost always thinking about the sexy priest in Fleabag. <laughs> <laughs> with very good reason. Oh my um, God. He's so hot. <laughs> you know, I want to be a priest, but I also want to date this woman. And like, it was, and it, you know, there's a lot of internal conflict um, yeah. in Fleabag, but I was like, is that a special kind or does it even matter? I just thought it was kind of a unique example. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say it's him versus spirituality. I would say that it's a standard internal conflict. The spirituality is part of the flavor of that conflict, but it is not really the source of that conflict. The source is within him. Um, so person ver versus spirituality, I think would probably fall under person versus society kind of thing. Um, okay. and, and we're going to get to that in like just a minute. I just um, was looking yeah. for a reason to talk about the sexy priest. You know what? I, I don't think we ever need an excuse to talk about the sexy priest. Have, has, if you guys haven't all seen Fleabag, go watch it, go watch it. And then come oh God, back to me so and we'll good. talk about the hot priest. Oh my God. I know I made Kelly watch it when I was in St. Louis and oh my God. Yes. It was so good. It, it was, was so, so good. freaking good. It is so, so. good. I, I watch it. I watch it a lot. I make a lot of people watch it. I make a lot of people watch it with me. It's really, um, it's, it's really it's a good. good, good show. I am still laughing about breaking up with somebody who cleans your apartment as a result of a breakup. I just, it's, you break up with them so funny. just because the place is just dirty. Just because the place is dirty. You're like, well, it's time for a fight. Anyway, if y'all haven't seen that show, you need to watch it. It is a very, very good show. Um, right. Yeah. Now that I have derailed us with the uh, oh, no, sexy no, no. priest. Welcome, uh, welcome derailment. I will talk about the hot priest and flea bag anytime you want. Anytime. That might be a fun bonus episode. Oh, um, that would be. Let's do that. That'll yeah, let's talk about Fleabag. Then um, I have to watch it again. Me too. What a shame. <laughs> what a shame. <laughs> so sad. All right. So internal conflict, person versus themselves. Mm -hmm. External conflict, person yes. versus something else. Yes. Person versus something else. Something outside of them. Uh, person versus person. Uh, person versus 
nature can be seen as an external conflict. A uh, person versus society can be an external conflict. Um, what that means is that the source of the conflict is external to your protagonist. Um, there's another force pushing back against your protagonist. Now, most movies, books, TV shows um, tend to be based on this kind of conflict, um, especially genre stuff it tends to really work um, very well in this like external conflict model. Um, you've got a good guy, you've got a bad guy. They both want different things. They're locked in conflict. Um, you've got Iron Man versus Obadiah Stane in the first Iron Man fighting over the company. Um, Neo versus Agent Smith in the Matrix. Neo wants to free the people in the Matrix. Agent Smith wants them to remain imprisoned. Uh, Indiana Jones versus Tote in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Both want to possess the Ark. Um, and one of the things that you might notice some of these have in common is that we have people who want to possess one thing or control one thing. And only one person can control something at a given time. Um, and and, uh, and so that gives you nice, easy external conflict, right? You know, um, you just add MacGuffin, right? And that's what a MacGuffin is. That's one of the terms that you'll hear uh, people talking about as a MacGuffin. What a MacGuffin is, is the object over which people are fighting in an external conflict. It is the item. And honestly, it doesn't matter, which is why it's called a MacGuffin. Like it really doesn't matter what it is as long as it can, it, it's immediate um, external conflict, immediate mutually exclusive conflict, because only one person can possess the Ark of the Covenant at once, can possess and control and, and decide what happens to it. Only one person can do that. So when you're fighting over that, it's automatically mutually exclusive conflict. Um, and that makes it nice and easy to build a structure on. Yeah. Yeah. So my, the title of my life movie right now is Dr. Jones and the Temple of Zoom, <laughs> because that is the hell that I am living in. Right oh now. my God. I love it. Yeah. I really want to make like a, a movie poster yeah. but out of We that. have to credit Noelle LaCroix for that because she came up with it, not me. Uh, um, <laughs> so, but can we go back to the Matrix for a second? Oh, sure, sure. Because I would have described the Matrix as internal conflict. Okay, tell me. Um, because, well, because Neo goes from a state of disbelief, mm -hmm. both in what he's seen and what he believes of himself, mm -hmm. to accepting believe like he literally yeah. has to accept his ability to stand in front of bullets and have them not hit him yes like the whole mm -hmm. thing there is, is no his spoon own, right there is no spoon mm -hmm. um so like I would have read that as primarily an internal conflict story you, might, you with, might be right it's been a while since I've seen the matrix I'd have to take a look at where the structure does and how the structure moves oh, I believe yeah. that the big movements upon which the structure are based are the external but there is absolutely like that internal conflict is absolutely present I think I think that the structure is but I haven't analyzed it recently oh, so I have okay. to go back and take a look but see yeah. the central narrative conflict is just the one that the structure is based on there can be other conflicts present okay. running alongside as well but I believe that the structure goes like the big moments and and the arcing of that story are about that fight with uh with oh. Agent Smith and see I see that fight as like a side hustle so yeah. okay what we should do when we get to structure yes. next season is let's do the matrix let's do the matrix absolutely you plot out the points you see okay. i'll plot out the points i see and we'll oh, compare them that'll be fun that would be really and fun and then we'll battle it out and see yes all we'll right i think that sounds that sounds really really fun yeah, yeah i haven't i haven't watched it in a while so i've taken another look at it you might be right you might be right yeah that'll I think be really the structure fun. is based on the external conflict um, yeah, that'd be really cool. Um, so yeah, one of the things that um, that you bring to this discussion of external conflict that I had never, uh, I had never heard of before you, mm -hmm. were kind of like these three elements, right, or like three right. components, three things to kind of keep in mind 
when you're looking at person versus nature or person versus society. So right. this this kind of like whole deeper layering of things here. Right. Well, because the thing is with person versus nature, person versus society, like person versus person is very, very clear. Person versus themselves, pretty clear, right? Mm -hmm. They threw all these other conflicts in. Um, and they're more like when you were talking about person versus spirituality, like that's kind of how this stuff presents for me, like person versus nature, person versus society. It's kind of it's kind of a source. It's kind of a flavor for the particular conflict. But in essence, it's I think almost always I haven't seen an instance in which it didn't break down to either external or internal, you know, mm -hmm. um, and sometimes the thing with external conflicts um, that can be like nice and simple, like again, like an external conflict, you throw in a MacGuffin, boom, you got something you can build a structure on. And then you can also build like it with Neo and the matrix. You can also build a beautiful, crunchy, wonderful internal conflict that flavors it beautifully, you know? Um, but your structure simply will be based upon that external conflict. And that is honestly like a very simple way to tell a story. So a lot of comedies have really simple structures, really straightforward structures like that, because it's just an easy way to build a structure then you don't have to spend as much of your real estate within the story explaining mm -hmm. how all of this stuff is happening. And you can just hang your jokes. You can hang your jokes on that structure, you know, so that's why that works really well. Um, so external conflicts seem simpler and more direct, um, but they do get a little hairy when we get to person versus nature, person versus society, all this kind of stuff. Um, these are legitimate external conflicts, but they present complications that can make them a little tricky to navigate because conflicts with a person as the protagonist and a person as the antagonist are just easier to wrangle. Um, this is true for three reasons. So these are the three elements of, of nice person to person external conflict. Um, one is reaction. Like the nice thing about an active sentient personified antagonist, which nature is not sentient and personified society is not sentient and personified. These are like forces, you know, um, they can make an external conflict. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, but, but having a person is just better because they're active and sentient. Um, so when your protagonist zigs, the antagonist can zag and block them, right? Um, this is necessary because any conflict a protagonist can quickly sidestep and get away from isn't going to be a strong or lasting conflict. It's hard to keep that story in the air. If a protagonist is walking down the sidewalk and there's some construction happening on the sidewalk that's blocking the way, the protagonist just switches to the other side of the street and goes on their way. But if a person doesn't want them to get where they're going, the person can go across the street also and block them there again. That gives you strong, active, sentient narrative antagonism. So reaction is one of the reasons why you want a personal external conflict, a personified external conflict. Um, escalation is another one. Like as the protagonist works to get around the antagonist, the conflict gets stronger, it escalates. The antagonist whose goal may not have even been about the protagonist personally in the beginning becomes personally invested. They get angry. They work harder. They actively make things worse. Sometimes because they're angry, they make it worse than necessarily they had to. Um, and that gives you a nice escalating conflict. In response, the protagonist also works harder, sometimes gets angry, becomes personally invested if they weren't already. Without a person as an antagonist, it is harder to get the conflict to become personal and to escalate. Um, and the third element, the third reason why having a personified external conflict can be easier, work better, um, 
um, is, is personal investment. In order for our conflict to remain in the air, it must be kept in the air by both sides. So we have to believe that this is important enough to both of these people. That they are going to fight pretty much to the death, either literally or figuratively, for this particular goal. Um, and so that personal investment makes it easier and more fun for the writer, I would argue. Um, because you have a perso personified antagonist actively escalating the conflict, rather than just passively kind of existing around the protagonist. Um, but the bottom line is this, if the conflict can remain in the air until the protagonist finally figures out a way to survive against whatever it is that's trying to kill them, say nature, or finds a way to meet their goal despite societal restrictions, you know, society, person versus mm -hmm. society, then you have like a narratively workable conflict. And I see here in your notes that you've asked me about two things I haven't seen. So I'm going <laughs> to Ah, uh, okay. Well, then I'll just say I also really like person mm -hmm. versus society stories. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. So I was thinking about The Handmaid's Tale. Mm -hmm. Now there is personification of that conflict. Like there yes. is personification of multiple antagonists. Right. But it seems like overall in The Handmaid's Tale. You're, it's, it's June against the world, man. Right. June against right. the world. Um, and to me, The Hunger Games is the same way. Um, mm -hmm. So Katniss is that like the society is personified mm -hmm. in multiple antagonists, but it is literally Katniss versus society. versus the world, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Versus the world. Mm -hmm. um, and I really do like those stories too. They're, they're a lot of fun. Yeah. And those can be legitimate because it is inescapable, you know? Right. Um, and if you have multiple personified antagonists that represent all of this society. I mean, I think that that can work. I'm not saying it can't work. I'm saying that it's something like if you're going to do it, you want to, you want to be real careful that you're making sure that you are, whatever you're doing with nature or society is making up for the benefits that you lose by not making it in a single personified antagonist. So you have to make sure that that works. Um, so one of the things you want to remember is that even though personified antagonists have the narrative benefits benefits that I've just laid out for you. That doesn't mean that these person versus nature, person versus society can't work. Um, one of the examples I use for person versus nature all the time that I think actually worked pretty well was uh, The Martian uh, by Andy Weir, uh, both the book and the movie. Um, and it worked out really well because he could not escape Mars. He was on Mars. The whole point was to escape Mars, but Mars wasn't necessarily personally invested. Mars wasn't like, um, I hate you like science boy and <laughs> I want to kill you, whatever. Um, and Mars wasn't reacting to anything that he did. It's just that the environment itself was so incredibly harsh. There was no way that he could survive without, you know, um, without, you know, working really, really hard. And no matter what he did, Mars somehow always found a way to fuck him over, right? You know, and to make it mm -hmm. worse. And to, and he had that time lock on it, which is beautiful. A time lock is, you know, you have to get this done by a certain amount of time. Um, he only had a certain amount of time. I believe the character's name was Mark Watley um, in the, in uh, the Martian. Um, he only had a certain amount of time before he could, um, before he was going to die, basically. So he had to, so there was a time lock on that conflict. He was going to die if he didn't get done, you know, by the time he ran out of, mm -hmm. you know, the, the life-saving supplies and, and um, situations that he had there. Uh, so you could say that that is man versus nature. That's a legitimate man versus nature conflict. I think that it worked out you know, um, he, he made that work, um, Andy Weir as a, as a writer. And, um, and I think that that's, that's fine. Like this, it holds up the structure, all of that. Um, the important thing is again, that whatever you're doing with society, whatever you're doing with nature, 
um, is strong enough that it makes up for what you're missing, what, what strengths you're missing from the personified, you know, form of an antagonist. And again, person versus nature, person versus society stories, they're all possible, but it's so easy to introduce like a personal antagonist, a personified antagonist who represents society or turn it into an essentially internal struggle. Um, like for instance, the priest, you know, like the mm -hmm. hot priest is it's an internal struggle. I, I want to stay faithful to my vows as a priest, but also I desperately, desperately want to have sex with Phoebe Waller-Bridge. That is a conflict anybody can understand, yeah. um, you know, and so that conflict for for him is internalized, but it is, you know, societally imposed, right? This idea mm -hmm. that priests can't get married, that priests have to be celibate, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's just, uh, I think when we talk about person versus nature, person versus society, these are all things that have been like taught forever in all of these, you know, literary stories. And, and they are a flavor of conflict, but again, mm -hmm. like they're going to boil down to either internal or external in the end, it's going to be internal or external. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking, I was trying to think of an example of person versus nature that mm -hmm. I enjoyed. And I, I was like, Oh, wild. I love wild by Cheryl Strait. That's great. Yeah. And then I was like, mm -hmm. Nope, it's not actually her versus nature. I mean, yeah. Cause first of all, it wasn't inevitable. She chose to go on the trail and she could have left at any time, but it mm -hmm. was in, internal right facing down internal demons i think so i've only read like half of that book yeah yeah but yeah. i mean that was a, a very much an internal struggle i think mm -hmm. for for her and she just happened like the trail just happened to be where she worked out that internal right struggle but right. it was an internal struggle yeah, yeah i would i would put that as an internal story too yeah um okay so question about layering sure. conflict mm -hmm. um which i kind of like this like recipe structure because mm -hmm. we're thinking about like i'll make a story lasagna um, <laughs> i love it so, <laughs> you you know we can have mundane and narrative conflict in the same story mm -hmm. multiple narrative conflicts all layered through that central narrative conflict mm -hmm. um and we talked about this a little but the same can also be true for internal and external you don't have to pick only no. one so no. like you're gonna you have your shouldn't yeah <laughs> So that main one, right, yeah. is going to be your central, which is going to determine your structure, which yes. we're going to talk about in season three, mm -hmm. but you really want to meet them, mix them together. So I was trying to go back to like my favorite childhood books, because mm -hmm. I was like, they're all internal stories, all of them. Um, but then I thought about A Wrinkle in Tom and mm -hmm. I was like, no, A Wrinkle in Tom has a bad guy, like a really yeah. big bad guy. But mm -hmm. I was like, nope, because Meg needs to defeat it and save her father. But in order to do that, she has to defeat her own inner demons. Mm -hmm. Like that's really, and the structure as we get to that big battle, mm -hmm. we only meet it at the end. Yeah. Everything all along mm -hmm. is Meg versus Meg. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I thought that that was, that's kind of interesting too, that like you, you, you need both or you want both or most stories lend themselves to both. Mm -hmm. But the reason that we're focusing on this so much is because of how it is going to relate to your structure. So you just want yes. that clarity, right? About what kind of story you're telling and why. Yes. Central narrative conflict. The fact that it is central relates directly to structure. So it is just about these are the moments that you base your structure on. These are these are the moments like it every anchor scene, and we're gonna get to this when we talk about structure, but every anchor scene in the structure relates directly to that central narrative conflict, right? So mm -hmm. these are the these are the like major drum beats of your story as you move through, right? And that is just about giving yourself a structure. There you can do a million other things all at the same time, you know. Um, so yeah, like having having solely an external structure with nothing internal going on 
may feel a little flat. I mean, it's, it's going to be like, um, I don't know, like, what am I, th- I, I, the first thing that comes to mind, I'm thinking like a mission impossible movie, you know, something mm. where like, and I don't know, I, cause honestly, I don't, I don't watch mission impossible. So maybe it's just because I'm, I'm, I'm seeing it from the outside. Like I haven't actually, but like those kinds of action movies, you know, those Tom Cruise kind of action movies where he's, you know, jumping out of a building and he's beating people up and it's all this, it's like all external. And like, is there anything going on internal for that character? I don't know. I kind of suspect not. Um, but I'm trying to think of like, you know, an action movie that doesn't have also an internal conflict along mm-hmm. with it. And the thing is like, I don't usually watch it, like maybe James Bond movies, maybe something like that. Um, those kinds of stories may have just an external conflict with nothing internal going on. What if you can't decide between shaken or stirred? Like, oh my God. I don't know. That's James serious Bond shit. really strong. <laughs> uh, my understanding is though, that like the, like Casino Royale, uh, the, what's I've his never name? seen any of them. What's yeah, his name? I want to say Dennis know. Craig. Is that even right? I have no idea. I have, I have no, no idea. idea. There's a new, there's a new guy at Casino Royale started with him. I can't remember the actor's name. Um, and supposedly James Bond was like a, a deeper, more conflicted character in those, but in some of the like classic, like the Sean Connery, the Roger Moore's, you know, um, James Bond's I don't know I think that those are the kinds of stories that tend to not have much internally going on as well um but most of your stories like you know I just I've done uh listen up a-holes which is a podcast about the Marvel Cinematic Universe in which uh I watched a million superhero movies you know for that (laughs) and um and the thing is that we usually had like a fair amount of internal conflict alongside with the external conflict I think that's what made those movies so compelling um so I really really liked those stories and I thought they were for the most part really well done um but the thing is is that as our storytelling becomes more sophisticated our taste in our stories becomes more sophisticated we demand more from our stories more complication more layers I mean for god's sake look at the popularity of game of thrones that Mm -hmm. is super as far as storytelling goes that is like super complex there is so much stuff happening there I will never forget. So when all this, the talk started about Game of Thrones was coming to HBO, Game of yeah. Thrones was coming to HBO. And mm-hmm. I was like, what the hell is Game of Thrones? I'm right. out of the loop. So of course I went and read all the books sure first because uh-huh. that's how I roll. Mm-hmm. And so I'm in that first book and then the thing happens. And I was like, there's four more books. What the how, hell? How, how, like, how, right. how, what? How? Multiple like, protagonists. You, you mm-hmm. just broke every narrative rule I've ever learned my whole life. I was mm-hmm. like, I, I don't know how to process this. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if it was just because it was so incredibly different. Yeah. You know, it was such a complicated layered mm-hmm. narrative. Um, yeah. I still have so many questions about stuff that just got dropped in those books, but yeah. whatever. Well, it's fine. because there was so much going on. I mean, yeah, we could do a whole discussion of Game of Thrones too. Um, well, we could if I didn't want to burn it down and light it on fire because of the ending. Um, but I, I, yeah, mm-hmm. I have I have deep thoughts. Yeah. Um, but I just remember being struck, and it didn't feel like it didn't feel like an example of I'm going to try this device just mm-hmm. because it hasn't been done before. Like right. it fit that story. Like yeah, that absolutely. was part of the aesthetic mm-hmm. of don't get too attached to anybody. Like <laughs> everyone is fair game in the Game of yeah. Thrones. But I do, I do remember being struck by that because of how different it was and how, right. you know, outside yeah. of the expected narrative, 
Yeah. All right. I'm going to talk about this just a little bit. And for anybody who hasn't seen Game of Thrones and cares about being spoiled, skip ahead. Like, I don't know. Okay. I was trying not to spoil. I know. I know. We try not to, but I'm like, you know, it's, you know, I was trying not to spoil like his girl Friday or whatever, like whatever. Um, Some (laughs) things have been around for a while. All right. All right. right. So what we're talking about in Game of Thrones, and and I want to talk about this just because I, freaking love what this guy did um what george R. R. martin did with these uh with these stories um is that we start game of thrones and we've got the story of eddard stark right he is uh set forth as our main protagonist right um and he's got this conflict, you know, where he he just wants to live, uh, you know, in the country and whatever, but he's called to service, uh, you know, in the in the main city by his, you know, best friend, practically brother, the king, right? Um, and so he's he's forced to do something he doesn't want to do when really he just wants to be at home with his family, you know? And so we feel like we are anchored on Ned Stark through that first season. Um, mm-hmm. And then at the end of the first season, they chop off his head. He's just dead. He's just yeah. dead and like that's dead. it and like what the fuck. Yeah. But the thing is that what's happening in Game of Thrones is that yes, you know, we um attach the first the first character you see I, I like refer to it like a duck imprinting on its mother. Mm-hmm. Like the first thing that a duck mm-hmm. sees, they think it's its mother and they'll follow it around whether it's a kitten or a dog or you know, a um a a person whatever like they'll follow it around and believe it's its mother i that may not be true but it is like the the idea the analogy that i'm using um and so as um viewers as readers of stories uh we attach to the first protagonist looking thing that we see in a story and and make that the protagonist and this is the person we're following through but the reality of Game of Thrones is that there are multiple protagonists, multiple parallel stories going on. So Ed Stark's story, we got through the run of that first season and, and his story ends when his head gets chopped off. But all the other stories are parallel stories, protagonists are going on at the same time. So those things are still happening. Um, but mm-hmm. um, but he's it's so interesting the way that that is done and the way that that's, um, that's put together. Um, and I absolutely love how they do that and it does make you think that like oh my god like that's not going to work you know but then it does but then it does yeah Yeah. I kept waiting I was like how are they bringing him back I didn't know this was a zombie story I I didn't know (laughs) no dude was just dead like Mm full-on dead Mm -hmm. um and it was just such a surprise that I you know I don't know I ended up in intrigue but I love it I love I love how it works. And I mean, that's the thing, like it works because he's still telling other stories because he's got all those other parallel stories that are still holding it up. Yes. One of our dolphins from the analogy last week, right? (laughs) One of our dolphins, you know, got its head chopped off and a little dolphin guillotine or whatever. Um, and, uh, but the other dolphins are still going and the pod mm-hmm. is still moving. Um, so that's, what's so beautifully complex about game of Thrones and game of Thrones. Like, yeah, we're going to have to have that discussion because the ending definitely like there are a lot we of problems with the end. We, we can't have that discussion unless you're just prepared to sit there and listen to me scream and rant and literally set things on fire. Oh, okay. Well, no, I don't want I, you to set things on fire like in your house because you've such, I will such a pretty, pretty things. house. You can burn a candle. <laughs> it'll be fine. But yes, I no, I understand. <laughs> I have never been so angry at a show's finale in my life. Like I yeah, will never forgive and it. It sucks ever. because that like it kind of retroactively ruins the rest of the experience for you. It was set up to do a thing. This was going to be queen versus queen in an epic goddamn fantasy battle with dragons. Yep. And we kill one and we drive the other insane. And I just, I, no, it is yeah, not okay. Yeah. And no, we'll never get over it. 
I am There's curious. A lot I'm hurt. of discussions to be had about the ways <laughs> in which season eight went went horribly, horribly bad. I still enjoy and respect the rest of the storytelling. And it is possible that George R. R. Martin, if he ever finishes that last book, might give us a decent ending in the actual book itself. So Maybe. it is entirely possible that he might fix that that problem in a weird reversal of adaptation uh, work. Yeah. But anyway, okay, that is the end of yeah. our Game okay, of okay. Thrones discussion. I, I don't even just know like where we were you off in the track. Notes. Oh, that's okay. No, I, I love it. It's so much um, fun. Really I love fun. having these discussions. Yeah, it's, it's very It's cool. really fun. Uh, because the other thing I wanted to ask about, uh, because this sounds like a pretty straightforward, mm -hmm. you know, there's two two types of central narrative conflict you have internal you have mm -hmm. external but as a writer like yes. you've written a lot of books mm -hmm. so what is can you just kind of tell us a little bit about like what was that process like for you did you have clarity on that central narrative conflict I know you're a panster so did it did I you ever panster. set out to write one and accidentally write the other or just kind of Oh, what has your experience been? Well, my experience, okay, first of all, like, as I've said early on in the process, the reason why I became a story expert, the reason why I studied story the way that I did is because I started writing novels before I had any idea what I was doing. I didn't know how all this worked and it drove me crazy because I was doing a thing and I didn't know how to do the thing, you know? Um, so my first handful of novels, I think that I understood that I was telling different kinds of stories in the romantic comedies, like little mass market paperbacks, like Maybe Baby and The Comeback Kiss and, um, and those, versus what I was doing in the women's fiction, Time Off for Good Behavior, Excellent Single Girl, A Little Ray of Sunshine, Fortune Quill, those, right? There are different kinds of stories. I didn't realize, I didn't really understand how they were different, but they're different because the romantic comedies were like uh, silly romps that had external conflict, often a MacGuffin. Uh, maybe Baby, mm -hmm. everybody's chasing a bird, right? Everybody Everybody wants to control this bird, wants to possess this bird. And so they chase after it. It's, it's very fun. It's completely silly, very silly story. Um, and, uh, and then the, um, the women's fiction was more about internal conflict. Uh, these were, you know, these characters who were really struggling to understand themselves and to change the way that they were approaching their lives because the way they'd been doing it wasn't working. Um, and so throughout the process of those books, they figured it out. They chose, you know, one side of that um, conflict or the other. Uh, I didn't understand these as central narrative conflicts. I didn't understand them even as external and internal entirely. Mm -hmm. um, so it took me a while to figure that out. By the time I was writing the Lucy March books, I understood. And I knew that I was doing um, external conflict, um, like a main structured external conflict you know, and then internal conflicts that worked in various spaces alongside that, because the internal conflicts are always more interesting for me to write. I think of external conflict as, um, as the thing that I do so that I can do the stuff I want to do. Right. You know, like I build an external hmm. conflict that builds the structure. Like I think about like that builds the stage upon which my characters can dance. Right. So, um, I can build a very, very simple stage and then have everything be focused on the dance. Right. You know, which is my characters doing their internal conflict, having all of their struggles, all that kind of stuff. Or I can mm -hmm. build a very elaborate stage that takes up more space, but then my characters don't have as much room to dance, right? Mm -hmm. Because you only have so much real estate within the story, you know? Um, so so basically, like, you could do it either way. Like, you could do it however you want. I would say that James Bond is all stage and set and everything, and then the only room James Bond really has is to point a gun or a device or, you know, chase somebody. Like, but there's not a lot of dancing going on there for that character yeah um, um so, yeah. 
I like that. I'm thinking about my like internal landscape of story and mm-hmm. how crazy it would drive you. Cause I've got some char- like characters dance on the stage and in the parking lot and like <laughs> two streets over. And then like, probably like out in a big tent in the sure. grass, because I, I love stories that have stories within stories, mm-hmm. whether they necessarily make sense or not. Yeah. Uh, I like multiple timelines and jumping perspectives. And I don't, you know, I'm like, what is baby? Plot? I, what is structure? Do, okay. And this is the thing that I need to say like over and over and over again, because I'm teaching everybody how to do this like narrative storytelling thing. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. But that may not be what you're doing. And that is okay. Like this is, if you choose to tell a narrative story, this is how you do it. Everything that I'm teaching you is how you do it. It is not the only way to tell a story. It is not the only way to create an experience through art, through, uh, you know, books or TV or film or whatever. Um, It is a way that will deliver certain benefits. Certain benefits come from narrative structure, certain benefits of accessibility for people. People can understand what's Mm -hmm. going on. They know, they they understand narrative structure almost instinctively. Um, Like I teach, um, when we get into structure, I'll talk about like, I teach narrative structure to novelists who have no idea what it is and they've already written their books and they're like, well, I've already written my book. So how am I gonna do it? I'm like, it's in there. It's in there because you've been absorbing it since you were a kid. So you've been absorbing structures the way that's that, um, that story works. You just haven't fine tuned it because you weren't aware of it, but you're going to have probably about three, three to five acts in your story. You're going to have a number of anchor scenes that escalate that conflict. Um, they may not be placed in the right place. They're, they're learning about all of this stuff helps you fine tune stuff that's already in your stories. Um, so yeah, like from a narrative structure perspective, there may Maybe things that you like to do within your story that don't really fit in this particular stage, but you can build an amphitheater. Like there are different right. things that you can build, you know, um, and you may just do it in a different way and you may just like doing it in a different way. I love narrative. And I also feel that like, no matter what you're doing, there's no kind of story that can't benefit from a narrative structure. Like that's my personal feeling on it. I Mm -hmm. always enjoy a story more when it's got a strong narrative structure. Um, But that said that I do see lots of movies and read books that don't necessarily have a strong sense of narrative structure, but are still doing something valuable and interesting. And one of the things that I don't want to do is, you know, what a lot of people do that they're like, the way that I see it is the only way that it can exist. Like if if you don't have narrative structure, because, because I love narrative structure because I'm dedicated to narrative structure. And this is what I've actually decided to build my entire life upon is the study of this thing that somehow that anything that doesn't do this is just crap. No, the world is a wild and wonderful and varied place. And there are a million ways to tell a story, right? A story just a series of events, right? Mm-hmm. It's just a series of events. Um, yeah. And so you can do that in a million different ways. Um, but I, you know, like narrative structure, if that is the way that you want to tell the story, if you want the benefits that come from putting it within a narrative structure, then you can choose to do this. And if that's not necessarily what you're into, then you can choose to do something else and it can still be beautiful and wonderful. 
So all yeah. of those things are true at the same time. <laughs> yeah, no, and it's, it's really great. But I, cause I joke all the time, I feel the way about like quality instruction that you feel about narrative. Yes. And, and I joke, but it's not a joke. I really do mean it. I think every single human being on the planet should be required to take one course in basic instructional design because yeah. bad in bad instructions, bad highway signs, mm -hmm. confusing directions, like all that shit can be fixed. Oh, no, okay? I know. It, yeah. Drives me insane when mm -hmm. I see it. I'm like, that is wrong. You don't do it. <laughs> right. I, so, mm -hmm. like, I'm, but I, you know, I do have to remind myself, Kelly, most people, you know, it's, it's fine. They're, and they're there, not hurting and there anybody. Can be some it's people, okay. Right. There, there can be some people who find a way to do to absolutely. Teach. Without that, I am incredibly grateful to have you at my side while I do this <laughs> because you're teaching me. I never, nobody ever taught me how to teach. I just sort of started teaching, you know, um, cause I had a certain level of expertise and I just started sharing it with people, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah. so it's, it's really wonderful to have you kind of guiding me through how to talk about this stuff, how to teach it. Um, and that means that I'm going to be able to reach more people and have more people understand. And that's what narrative structure does, right? You know, right. It, it makes it accessible right. to more people. More people are going to be able to follow you through this space where you're taking them. Um, mm -hmm. but, but again, like that doesn't take away the value from things that don't have this or don't do this. This is solely right. for writers right. who want to do this thing. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about every it. Writer should, but you know, but yeah. <laughs> But thinking about it in terms of accessibility is, is an interesting point. Like yeah. that's kind of a, a good way to think about, um, you know, to think about that work. So, um, okay. So the next step concept, yeah. the next mm -hmm. idea, the next building block that we're going to talk about in narrative is goals. Mm -hmm. And so can you kind of give us like a preview of next week? How does what we've talked about with internal and external conflict mm -hmm. relate to characters goals? Well, right. I mean, you know, we did character for our first season. So we talked about protagonists and antagonists kind of talked about what they were and what they did. Um, and then here we built this entire formula, right? P gag, right? The G and the G is about goals, protagonist goal, antagonist goal. We haven't talked a lot about goals and how to build goals that are strong and that are effective. Um, it, it can't just be that they want something. Like you have mm -hmm. to think how important it is, um, how what they want is so important to them. And so how you think about your goals and how you build your goals is actually very important to this whole process. So that is what we're going to be focusing on next week. Okay. Very cool. All right. So to wrap up external and internal conflict, do you have ideas for exercises and or homework? I do. I do. You guys have been uh, looking first, you were looking at stories and identifying different kinds of conflict, mundane conflict, narrative conflict. Last week, I had you look at stories and try to identify the central narrative conflict. What is the main conflict upon which the story is structured? So now I want you to go back and look at the central narrative conflicts you identified. First of all, do you still think that the conflict that you identified is actually the structural central narrative conflict? Um, which of those conflicts are internal? Which are external? And how do you know the difference? How can you tell? Uh, so I want you to go back and kind of reverse engineer, right? Look at these <laughs> stories. That is one of the best ways to learn. Watch the stories, think about it, ask those questions. And if you guys who, uh, you know, listen to How Story Works can find a partner in How Story Works, like somebody mm. else who listens to How Story Works, uh, who can go through and do these exercises with you, there is nothing in the world. I have had the incredible, incredible personal fortune of having such unbelievably smart friends 
friends who also really love stories, who I would be able to talk about the stories that I was engaging with. Um, and I talk about them, about those stories with them and having a, a, like a smart friend that you can sit down and talk about stories with is probably the absolute number one best teaching tool. Um, as you talk with them, as you take uh, things from the text and defend your ideas, you know, look at your textual, uh, what you've got in the text, pull out the textual support for what it is that you believe to be true about this and listen to them make their arguments. They might say something different. Um, and as you have those discussions, that is the absolute best way to learn stories. So um, for those of you uh, do hashtag uh, how story works on Twitter, you can find each other there. Um, if you are a Patreon supporter, we have a discord channel in which you guys can pair up and do your homework in the how story works discord channel. Um, there's a number of ways that you guys can find each other, but I would, I would definitely recommend, you know, or pull in a friend who isn't listening to how story works and make them listen to it and do these exercises with you. Um, those it's really, really fun. It's a good time even for people who aren't writers it's just interesting like i well okay yeah. i personally find it fascinating i've dedicated my entire life to it and i haven't gotten bored yet i get bored really really easily um so that's <laughs> just this is just my personal passion but i think it's loads of fun so i would pull somebody in and uh get a how story works buddy yeah okay that's cool i can't wait to see uh some of the stories that people pick if they yeah. go on line and yeah. tell us that'll be really fun yeah no come into the discord uh chat and if you're a patreon subscriber you can come into the discord chat and tell us uh what stories you're talking about and what you've seen yeah be great yeah yeah all right cool so every week we end with love what you love what stories are you loving this week lonnie oh you know what's really funny i've had a week of complete and utter exhaustion this is the problem with mm. me um i keep like working and doing stuff. And like, I got a full-time day job and then I'll do, you know, whatever I need to do for chipperish on the side with that. And there's just always so much that needs to be done. And my days are really, really full. And I get to a point where I simply cannot function anymore. And I had one of those days, I call them crash days where like, you know, if you don't take the time to rest, the rest will take you. Like, um, it will find you. And, um, and so I had a crash day and one of the things I like to do is just have like a TV show playing in the background. And I noticed that taxi is on Hulu right now. Taxi is a show from the seventies. I mean, I was a small, small child when this was on. And, um, and so like, I vaguely remember it. It's one of those shows. I remember like some of the actors from it. Um, but I don't really remember much about it. So I just started watching it and it was, um, it was really kind of fun to watch in this, like, it's just kind of running in the background while I'm playing games on my phone and lying in bed as my, my body did demand for a day, you know? Um, and it was really, really fun to just kind of, uh, watch that. So uh, Hulu actually has a whole bunch of old shows for nostalgia, you know, like, like mm -hmm. from the 70s and the 80s. And I just want to kind of go through and watch all of them, you know, and just kind of like have them running in the background. But Taxi was actually kind of fun. Uh, what are you loving right now? So I read uh, Sarah Waters Tipping the Velvet oh, um, mm -hmm. and then found out that the BBC had done a miniseries adaptation. Mm -hmm. And so I watched that and it was really good. I really oh, enjoyed awesome. it. Um, and I, I often have the the conflict between a book that I love and the screen version of that yeah. story. Um, but mm -hmm. this was really good. And oh, it was, good. it was visually beautiful and mm -hmm. it was a lot of fun to watch. Um, and I just started reading a book called Plain Bad Heroines. Oh, I by love Emily it. M. Danforth, right? Is that not That's the best title, title ever? Yeah. Plain Bad Heroines, like uh -huh. gimme. 
Um, so I've only gotten through the beginning, but the beginning was so good that I was like, I'm going to watch another show. Yeah. Awesome. It's so I love it. When you finish it, you'll have to follow up and let us know how I, you like it. I will. I awesome. will. I love it. Yeah. All right. To join in the discussion on Twitter, follow me at Lonnie Diane Rich and Kelly at Dr. Kelly Jones and use the hashtag HowStoryWorks. You can also follow all of our shows and news at Chipperish. How Story Works and everything Chipperish Media does is made free to all by our generous patrons. If you're getting value out of this discussion, we ask that you help us out by kicking a dollar or two a month our way so we can keep decapitating our protagonists. This episode of How Story Works is brought to you by the Chipperish Media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why How Story Works is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to our December producers. Shelly, Kristen, Jonathan, Rose, Erica, Alice, Abigail, and Sarah. And this week's message for our power producers, Layer the Conflict Lasagna. This week for our patron-exclusive content, we put up our discussion of The Queen's Gambit. Also, Ian Martin of The Passion of the Nerd and I did another episode of Let's Watch Roulette, where we roll a random movie or TV show, watch it, and then give you our response. This month, Dairy Girls. And we opened up a new patron benefit. When you give $10 or more a month to Chipperish Media, you can join us for our live recording of the episode. So we're recording with an audience and it's kind of awesome. We'll be back next time with our discussion of goals. Until then, watch Fleabag, people. I'm telling you, hot priest. And, and this week's... Oh, why am I reading the thing? Sorry, uh, we can't I, we can't both say the line at the same time, Lonnie. You can hold it or I can hold it. You want a MacGuffin <laughs> arm wrestle me right now? <laughs> <laughs>